Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of their disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. John, if you would come up here and pray for me. God, I thank you for Tony, and I thank you for just the gifts you've given him um, to preach and to share and interpret the gospel um, to us. I pray uh, specifically today that you would help him um, relate this passage to us and just uh, let this passage be an encouragement to us and also just um, a portrayal of how good and powerful you are. Um, God, I just I just thank you for, for who you are and how good you are to us and ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Brett. In all of our most important relationships, um, I'm I'm not talking about casual acquaintances, the people you pass by in the day-to-day, but I'm talking about our most important relationships. And every single one of them, there will come a time when there's trouble. Um, If you are married you probably know all about this. Um, Whenever you take two independent people and you put them together in one household under one roof and you have to agree on not everything, but sometimes it feels like practically everything, there will be disagreement, right? Disagreement on how to address issues, disagreement on um, how to go about your day, disagreement on habits that one person has and the other doesn't. Trouble enters in. It happens in friendships. It happens in relationships between children and their parents, between brothers and sisters, bosses and workers, co-workers. Trouble enters in. And what we're going to teach over and over is that the foundational reason that trouble enters into human relationships is is sin. That selfishness, a desire to please ourselves, to elevate ourselves over other people, it, it crosses our circuits and makes us unable, unwilling to approach others with grace. And it's also true in the most important relationship that we have that of ourselves to our God. We want to have a relationship with God, but sin enters in and breaks it. There's trouble. Um, 
there's no real disagreeing with God because he's God. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. And yet, we still do, with our actions and our lives, disagree with him. And so, in our own human relationships, there come times whenever we have to confront one another. Right? If you sin against me, if your wife or your husband sins against you, if your mom or your dad or your child sins against you, there comes a time when confrontation has to happen. Hard words have to be said. Whenever a relationship's in trouble and you're talking about the trouble, is it anything other than hard? And when we say hard words, is it a cheerful thing, anybody? Or is it a fearful thing? Scary. In the passage that we come today, we come to today, is an example of hard words being brought to a people. We have Jonah, a prophet, tasked with traveling to Nineveh, and preaching out against it, bringing hard words to the people. Their relationship with God is broken, and it's about to bring danger upon them. And Jonah brings hard words. We're going to get right into the text here, starting in verse 3b. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Let's start by just looking at the city of Nineveh itself, the people that would be receiving the hard words that Jonah had to give. It's referred to as exceedingly great. Now, if you remember earlier on in Jonah, whenever we first mentioned Nineveh, we talked about this phrase in Hebrew, exceedingly great, being a little bit ambiguous. Um, most scholars you know, take a safe translation uh, referring to its size that it is physically a big city for its day, its footprint. It is exceedingly large. Um, but, but this particular phrase doesn't just refer to largeness. It can also refer to its overall importance in the world. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, one of the most powerful centers of government in the world at the time. Not only was it a large city, but it was an exceedingly influential, important city. Likewise, where it says three days' journey in breadth in, in the English Standard Version that we have, your version may say something else. Um, there's, there's a sense that a journey in Nineveh would take three days, whether that's because it literally takes three days to walk across or because of local customs, you spend each day doing different things, or perhaps... Jonah's particular prophetic uh, mission would take specifically three days. Uh, we find Nineveh, a massive city, an important city, and a city in which Jonah is going to spend at least three days preaching his message. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so we're told that on the very first day of his journey, he begins to immediately preach the message that God sent him to preach. 
He didn't come in and scope out the land. He didn't, he didn't get the, the, the lay of, you know, who should I go and talk to first? No, he goes into the city, and he immediately begins to preach to the people. And his message is simple, and it's short. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Um, it's so short <laughs> that it, it almost seems curious. Like if you, if you just take it at face value, is Jonah literally just walking through the streets, shouting out this same phrase over and over with no explanation? Um, it's really hard to say. Often, whenever prophetic words are recorded in Scripture, they're done so in summary. And so, for example, Paul was known to preach all day and all night, and yet we can read his sermons in like, you know, two minutes if we just read the text. Um, perhaps this is a summary, but we've been given a focus in the previous passages on Jonah needing to deliver God's exact words. Do you remember that? The words were important. And so this message, although it's short, we can take as God's clear words to Nineveh. In 40 days, you'll be overthrown. Is there anything odd about that prophetic message? Does anybody notice anything missing? Jonah doesn't say, um, shape up, guys, because if you don't shape up, you're going to be in trouble. What does he say? He just says, in 40 days, you're done for. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Period. Nothing else. It is somewhat open to, to interpretation. He doesn't say how it will be overthrown. The phrase could mean militarily. Um, perhaps an invading army was on the approach. Perhaps a natural disaster was going to come through and destroy it. Um, we have similar phraseology used for Sodom and Gomorrah elsewhere in the Old Testament. Those are two famous cities where God rained down fire to destroy them for their sin. But they'll be overthrown. And it'll be done in 40 days. Now the term for 40 days here is a term that's used to refer to dozens of days, not just the number 40. It's kind of like whenever I say, you know, will you give me a few M&Ms? I'm not specifying an exact number, but it's, you kind of get an idea of it's, a, it's around a certain amount. The, the term for 40 days here was like that. There is going to be a set time that's not super long, but it's also not super short, coming whenever Nineveh would be destroyed. And again, there's no explicit call for repentance, um, but there is maybe an ounce of hope given in the fact that there's a little bit of time. Jonah doesn't say, tomorrow you're all dead but in 40 days. And in the next verse, we see how the people of Nineveh receive these really hard, um, maybe seemingly ungracious words from God. Verse 5, it says this, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah's only one day into his preaching. Just one day. 
out of at least a three-day trip. And the people respond almost immediately. Do we see that? So Jonah, God's prophet, brings hard words of destruction against them, and they respond almost immediately. They have soft hearts. They're prepared. They're ready to receive the words, and they respond almost immediately. It's kind of a repeat of what we saw with the sailors, isn't it? We have this example of Jonah being this hard-hearted man who doesn't want to run after God, who doesn't want to obey God, and yet the pagan sailors on the boat that he was on earlier responded to God quicker than he did. And here, Jonah walks in, preaches the message, and these hard-hearted, evil Ninevites repent almost immediately. Again, they have soft hearts. Were they already scared of something? Um, we'll talk a little bit, bit about that in a moment. But we can, I think it's fair to say God had prepared them for the message. They knew there was trouble. And so how do they respond? They specifically respond, first off, by calling for a fast. That's, that means that people are going to stop eating. And notice that this call for a fast uh, is grassroots. It starts at the bottom. The people hear the message, and it doesn't take any government official to say anything to them about what they should do. They immediately respond. They want to fast, and it says here that they want to put on sackcloth from the, the greatest to the least of them. You used to be able just to say in an illustration like this, think of sackcloth like the sack that you put potatoes in. But now everything's in plastic. Um, raise your hand if you've seen an old-fashioned potato sack. You know what I'm talking about, rough material. So that's most of us. I can safely use that illustration here. That's great. Um, it is a coarse, gritty, loosely woven material. It's done as cheaply as possible so that you can mass produce them. And uh, it's not extravagant at all. It's almost disposable. But if you would imagine wearing one of those as a shirt and like trying to lay down and get comfortable, um, scratchy and itchy and coarse, completely uncomfortable. They had sackcloth back then as well. It was made from animal hair, loosely woven, scratchy animal hair. And so if you can imagine everyone in the city taking off their clothes, and Nineveh was a capital city, and so people would have been dressed very extravagantly, and they all start putting on this sackcloth. They take a posture of mourning. Um, we don't, when we get upset, we don't wear sackcloth today. Um, but oftentimes, whenever there's a funeral, everyone will dress in black. There's just kind of this thing that I'm going to wear outwardly, something that reflects the way that I feel inside. Does that make sense? So we wear black to a funeral because we acknowledge that death is a dark, painful thing. And likewise, they were putting on sackcloth to, to show that inside they felt uncomfortable. That inside they felt coarse and raw in response to the message God was giving them. And so they showed it outwardly by wearing the sackcloth. And again, everyone is involved here. The rich and the poor, the powerful, the powerless. It says from least to greatest they did this. 
I think this is something extraordinary because if we look at our own society and our own ills and our own troubles, um, there are times whenever we could, we could stand up and we could proclaim, something's wrong with our country, right? We could give a hard word, and the response of the people would be to blame others, right? So the rich people blame the poor. The poor people blame the rich. The powerful people blame the followers. Like the elite blame the average person. If they just get their act together, or if they just listen to us, the country would be better. And us that are on the lower level look up to the elite and say, if you just get off your high horse, right, the country would be better. We don't see that kind of class warfare in Nineveh. Whenever the message comes to them, the poor, the rich, they're all dressed the same. They recognize that their trouble is common to both. And they come in repentance. That shows us that the softness of heart is not just among the poorest of the poor who were already hurting and already desire some kind of change in the city of Nineveh. The softness of heart is the whole city through. It's a universal softness. We see this even more clearly in the next verse, verse 6. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. We don't even have a, a reason to believe that the king ever even heard the message personally himself from Jonah. It's not like Jonah came in and had an audience with the king. The picture here is that word of what was going on in the streets reaches him, and he's moved. Even the very king When we picture a human king, we picture a man exalted and powerful. And this king left his throne, takes off his royal robes, puts on sackcloth. And then it says he sits in ashes, literally an even more extreme sign that and let everything else burn down around me. This is where I am. So who is this king? The question arises um, because we're, we're talking about a story that happens in history. Like Jonah happens in history. We know um, that there was a prophet Jonah from the book of Kings um, that served in, in Israel at a time. We know that that is most likely because of the, the names given, the surnames given. It's the same Jonah that preaches to Nineveh. And during the lifespan of Jonah... Um, there are several Assyrian kings that would have ruled in Nineveh and outside of Nineveh, over Nineveh as a capital city. Um, it's hard to be sure exactly which one it is. Um, but that being said, um, there was a king who reigned in Assyria between 772 and 755 BC, so for a total of 17 years, during the life of Jonah, his name was Ashurdan III, and he ruled during a time of military weakness. So Assyria was one of the most strong empires, but they were being snipped at from all sides. They were losing territory to those who were coming up against them. Not only that, but they'd been plagued with earthquakes during his rule. Um, that's recorded. And during his rule, there was also a total solar eclipse. 
over the land of Nineveh. Now, in primitive, like now, we can predict a total solar eclipse. There's one coming up in Missouri later this year. Don't miss it. Um, you'll be dead before it happens again in Missouri. We can predict them now. We know why a solar eclipse happens. But back then, all they knew is that it happened irregularly, unpredictably. And just imagine being a primitive with no understanding of the revolution of the planets, and all of a sudden the sun goes out. Like, that freaks you out, even if it's just for a little bit. Imagine looking up at the sky, and the very thing that life depends on goes dark. And that had happened during this king's reign, and um, there were times whenever literally kings would abdicate the throne, whenever there was a total solar eclipse, they would install another king, a temporary king, to go through whatever bad time was about to come with plans to reinsert themselves in power later. And so we, in, during, during the reign of Ashurdan III, there were crazy things that went on. And so you've probably a good guess. For Jonah to show up in a city and the city be ready to say, yeah, you're probably right. Um, it's, a, it's as good of a guess as any. We know that their hearts had to have been softened beforehand to have received the message. And so that's a, that's a possible response. In any case, again, he gets off his throne. He gives himself over to discomfort. He basically says, I am not in control of the future. And then he issues a decree. Let's take a look at this in verse 7. It says, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is, that's in his hands. And so he takes the popular movement of fasting and mourning over the, the pronouncement that's come in, and he makes it a law. He says, if any of you are not doing this, start doing this now. And notice that he expands it. He says, not only man, but also beasts are to participate in the morning. Um, like asking cows to pray. Like that's the image here. I mean, imagine, this is re like imagine if the president held a pre press conference and said, everyone, go to the Lord in prayer and ask your cows to pray too. Like that's... That's literally the pronouncement that happens. They dress their livestock in sackcloth. And it looks ridiculous from our point of view, but think of it more this way. They are completely desperate. They are so scared of the judgment to come. They are so soft-hearted towards the decree that's been made against them and they are so desperate for relief, for reprieve, for mercy, that they, they dress their livestock in sackcloth, saying, everybody, even the animals call out to God. And then he tells them to turn away, to repent from evil, that is just a general sense of immorality. All you people out there being nasty, stop it. And then he says, turn away from violence. 
um, that is like a posture of selfish aggression, doing harm to others. The Assyrian Empire lived by evil and violence. It's how they expanded. And the king says, we have to turn away. We have to repent. And then you see his reasoning for the decree in the next verse, verse 9. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Jonah has given them no word that mercy is guaranteed. Just the hard fact of the truth that you're evil and you're going to be judged for being evil. But they have 40 days, whatever length that would be. And so the king of Nineveh says, who knows? Maybe if we pray hard enough, Maybe if our repentance is really, really real and we make it really clear that it is, maybe if we turn from our violence and our evil and if we do so aggressively, God might also relent. There's uncertain hope there. What else can we do? Is kind of the thought. We need his mercy. So who knows, right? The answer to that question, who knows, is Jonah and us. God has spoken upon this issue precisely um, and specifically. He does it in Jeremiah, which is going to be up on the board. Specifically, Jeremiah 18. Um, The directly applicable part is from 7 to 8, but I'm going to read through to 10. And this is God speaking. He says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Jonah knows this is true. Verse 9. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build it and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Whenever God speaks to man, whenever he gives a prophetic word about who we are and who we should be, he fully intends to make a difference in us. He gives words to us, he gives his word to us, so that it might change us. Whenever he preached, whenever Jonah preached, using God's word to Nineveh, um, In 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. God wanted that prophetic word to do something in the Ninevites, to change them. His his 
pleasure is not in destroying people, but in seeing them come to repentance. His blessings, his curses are conditional upon how people act towards him and respond towards him. That's the biblical truth. So this is hard for some of us because it it makes us uncomfortable. Um, Does that mean God changes his mind? I thought God didn't change his mind. Does that mean God doesn't control the future? It sounds like the future happens conditionally based upon what we do. We believe that God's sovereignty, that his control over the world, is, is true. He has complete control. We also believe that humans are really responsible for what they do and that we do affect other people. And we believe that those two truths, those two biblical truths, are compatible with one another, that they're not in conflict, that they don't fight. If we give ourselves over to like a gross fatalism that just says whatever happened will happen, God's, God already knows the future, it's going to happen anyway, why fight it? If we give ourselves over to fatalism, we ignore the plain teaching of Scripture. That God intends for us to respond to his words in repentance. He will show us mercy. And if we declare um, that you know, God's just kind of then strolling about, wringing his hands, just kind of hoping that we'll respond and do what he wants, that he has no control, he's just waiting on us. We also ignore the plain teaching of Scripture. That's that's not who he is. Before these truths, we just have to be humble. We have to be teachable. And we have to be thankful. Like, God is in control, and he's not a tyrant. God has complete control over the universe, but he doesn't take pleasure in destroying people or harming them. We have a God who's in control, but is for us. We should take comfort in that. He shows us this most clearly in the gospel. He loves us. He knows that we were on a course towards judgment and destruction. And rather than let us be destroyed, rather than let us go about in our own way, Rather than let us continue destroying our own personal closest relationships, he sent his son to come and to show us a different way, to die for our sins. He changed history through his sovereign work on the cross to save sinners. He showed us all mercy. And in verse 10, we see God showing mercy to the Ninevites. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God showed the Ninevites his mercy. He responded to their repentance with a grace they never deserved. He saw their hearts change, And he was pleased by it. He was happy about it. 
Now, as we go into next week, we're going to see what Jonah thinks of all this. Um, so stick around for that, because it's a crazy, crazy conclusion to the book of Jonah as we look over the next few, few passages. But to finish off this week, I want to talk to us. Um, in this passage, we see two soft hearts. We see a finally softened heart of Jonah, willing to preach a message to people that he hates. And we see the softness of the people who heard the message, a people that had lived evil, selfish lives. The word entered in to those soft hearts and radically changed the outcomes, right? Nineveh wasn't destroyed because there were soft hearts to receive a hard message. So in this passage, we see the softness of the one with the message, the one who must hear it, and we see a beautiful result. God's mercy reigns over all. So how about us? Um, some of us are in messed up relationships right now, relationships where we're hurt in one way or another right now, and we, we may need to go have a hard conversation about God's truth with someone we know. But that can be hard, right? Like Jonah, we often grow to resent the people that we're called to talk to. Soften your heart. Some of us are in situations where we need to receive God's word as it's spoken to us. In our relationships, we are sinning against people, and we need to receive the rebuke against us for that sin. I pray that you would soften your heart. If, if the messenger is soft, and if the person receiving the message is soft-hearted, beautiful things happen. Husband, if you go to your wife with grace and gentleness, wife, if you respond to your husband with grace and gentleness, there is no end to the good things that can come in your marriage. Brothers, sisters, friends, coworkers, if you take that attitude towards others, even if you don't think they'll respond in kind, beautiful things can happen. If there are people that you know that don't know Jesus, if you would just be willing to speak the message to them, to tell them about who he is, God may have prepared a way for them to be changed, just like the Ninevites. Are you hard-hearted in general? Is that you? You're saying, well, I don't know that I need to talk to anybody. I don't know that anybody's talking to me, but I don't know about any of this. I'm a stubborn guy. You say, I know my heart. I know I'm resistant to change. Then the only thing that I would say to you is pray that God would soften you. That God would pray for, that God would prepare your heart to receive what you need to receive. And um, and that we'll pray together for you now. Heavenly Father, um, we want to thank you for your willingness to bring hard truths to bear on our lives. We also want to thank you for your mercy.
the way that you allow us to repent. You give us the time and the space. And you provided your son as a sacrifice to make it all possible. Not only that, you pursue us. You ceaselessly pursue us. And so, God, I ask that you would soften our hearts. I ask that you would soften the hearts of the people in this room towards others and their relationships, towards you. God, for those of us who are hard and calloused, for whom a soft heart seems, uh, seems far off and impossible, I pray that you would do whatever you need to do. Open us up to you. Open us up to other people. Peel away our cynicism. Heal our brokenness. Lord, give us grace that's like your grace. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.